For those of you that are wondering where you've seen the notes in the bulletin before, it was two weeks ago. And I'll tell you what this is all about. I'm doing something I haven't done often. And uh, I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing. We trust the Lord that he'll please himself with the results. Um, I am... I, I probably sometimes get accused, and probably with good reason, for not following my notes. Um, and, and that's, as, as many times as not, that's true. And I get onto an expository, I don't know, rabbit trail. It's usually not without substance, but sometimes people say, wow, I, I appreciated that, but I didn't, I didn't see where that was in the notes. In preparing for the message two weeks ago, I ended up reproducing texts from Scripture, and I've got some additional notes in here. I've got Strong's numbers for all the words. So if you are one that follows Strong's numbering system in your studies, you can chase these. Otherwise, just pay attention to the English. I've emboldened some words that I think warrant particular notice. And you can chase those. We'll make comments about some of them. There are eight pages of notes here. Thanks to Joyce for helping me get this in book. Well, actually for getting it in booklet form. Helping me. I didn't do a thing. Um, All I did was put the notes together and she put it in booklet form. Which she likes and I think that's a good thing. Um, the, (laughs) The title of the message is At Ease in Perilous Times. Now, I'm going to set the stage here. What I'm going to do today is to finish up what I started two weeks ago and rush through the end of it. We're going to try to get through it today. I'm going to read through, essentially work through the text. If you don't have your Bibles with you, if you don't have them open, you may not actually need them. You can, you can follow along from your notes. We'll make expository uh, comment as we go, and once through, probably you'll do it. And as I watch the clock, as it winds down, and I'm not done, we'll we'll hurry up a little bit. At ease in perilous times. This will be substantially from 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 12, which we covered two weeks ago, from Colossians 1, verses 1 through 14, part of which is a prayer for the Apostle Paul for the saints at Colossae. Now, I, I don't know whether I indicated last week or not, or two weeks ago, previously, that there is a similar prayer in Philippians chapter 1, but the apostle shares his heart for the saints under the governance of the Spirit. God moved the men that wrote Scripture so that what they wrote down was accurate, and because it's accurate, it's authoritative, it came out from God. Colossians 1, Philippians chapter 1, I don't have that enumerated here, but then we're going to go to 1 John 2. Imagine that. Don has taken care of his grandson, but Don was in 1 John 3. Our scripture reading this morning from 1 John 3, verses, what, 22 through 24, thereabouts. Um, And then we'll end up in 2 John chapter 1, verses 4 through 10. Now we're going to organize this around four... Uh, observations that we may contemplate in the form of questions. Perilous times have come, or shall come. I'm going to set the stage there by quickly reviewing from 2 Timothy 3. Then, 
The title is At Ease in Perilous Times. What does it mean to be at ease? At ease. That's a term you've heard before. That's a term those who have matriculated through the seminary up in Oregon have heard, have been taught, have used. I have some issue with it, although I think it's a wonderful term. I'm going to embellish that just a little tiny bit, maybe. But at ease in perilous times. Now, that's, that's, uh, that, those two notions don't dance in the same space, really. Perilous times, at ease. At ease, tranquility in perilous times. We're going to contemplate that to some degree. What is the remedy? And we've suggested in point number two here as you work down through the notes, the remedy for being at ease in perilous times, you're going to find is understanding what your relationship is to, you think you've got the answer, to the Christ. The Christ. By the way, what is the Christ? Where would you go to prove it? What is that notion all about? Well, everybody knows the Christ, the Messiah, which people do notoriously today in preaching and teaching. When they come to Christ in the New Testament, they automatically make it the Messiah, Israel's Messiah. Now, I've preached from this pulpit, and I've heard your, your pastor preach from this pulpit on that idea. Disabuse yourself of that quick and easy reciprocal, what should we say, substitution, that they're precisely interchangeable. They are not. They are not. The Christ is not, in the New Testament, always and only Israel's Messiah. We're going to define the Christ as the anointed. We're going to take a look and give you some references. Would you know where to go, just out of curiosity? Because I've preached on this before from this pulpit, but not when you were here. So as I'm contemplating this, I'm thinking, hey, this is worth repeating, but numerous people, numerous ones of these in, in our uh, seated today know what this is about. Oh, let's just move on. Well, here's someone who doesn't. Okay? So we're going to, when you leave today, you're going to have some confidence about where to go in Scripture to substantiate this notion and what confidence you should have derived from what Scripture says about this notion. What is the What? Who? is the Christ, if it's a person, right? Oh, my word. That's provocative. The Christ, second person of deity. Well, let's stick around. To be at ease in the Christ. We were in, in Scripture today with Don in the Sunday school class where this notion of being at ease, it's the word, it's the Greek verb meno. And it really basically simply stated is abide. Well, to abide, to, 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 to stay, you're abiding in the seat that you chose this morning. Are you just taking up one seat? Or you're, kind of, you're kind of cheating on her seat. She's abiding in her seat. You're kind of abiding in your seat and her seat. Hope you will abide there till the end of the service. And then you'll get up and depart. Presumably, abide, to stay. Well, it's really a little bit more textured than that when we contemplate the way it's used in Scripture, the way John, I think, introduces it in John 15, and then the way it... The, the, I, it's a theological term. There's a theological notion that issues from this concept of abiding. And when we get to First John and the passages that we've enumerated... 
there's going to be a there are going to be some imperative you used. You are to do some abiding. Well, I guess I better know what that means. And something else, better be prepared to do some abiding in you. So you're going to abide somewhere, and something else is going to abide in you. And that needs, to, that needs to happen. That needs to continue to happen on an ongoing basis. And certain things about the Christian life will be contingent upon that happening. All right. What's the remedy for perilous times? To be at ease. To understand what is this, what is the Christ? Now, there are going to be some other notions here that we'll skip through. One of them is, what about experiential knowledge of Excuse me, of the Father. I delivered a challenge a week or two ago to the graduates from the Bible Institute, and I was intrigued by this notion of full experiential knowledge of the Father. Experiential knowledge is knowledge that is gained in process. You don't gain experiential knowledge overnight, right? Reasonably accurate statement, particularly with respect to Scripture. You don't gain experiential knowledge overnight. You don't gain experiential knowledge of surgery Irrespective of how much time you spend in the classroom, until you get into the operating theater and actually do some cutting under the careful supervision of a senior surgeon in a teaching college, presumably. Same thing with flying. Same thing with a number of other disciplines, right? The experiential knowledge comes with the doing. And I have said recently, the only safe place for you to learn by doing is in the will of God. I didn't see that written down anywhere, but that's a synthesis of what I think Scripture teaches. You can safely learn by doing under the governance of God the Spirit when you're in the will of God. Be careful. Be careful. Stay in the will of God. Point number three, full experiential knowledge of the Father depends upon learning to be... You've never seen the Father, have you? Any of you? Scripture says you haven't. How am I to have full experiential knowledge of the Father? Wow. Don't even know if I love him. Scripture says a way, there's a way to be confident that you love him. And by the way, we'll tell you right now because there's nothing wrong with it. It's not a game. It's not a guessing game. The way to know if you love the Father is you love the things the Father loves. Do you love the people the Father loves? Scripture will tell us, do not say you love the Father if you don't love the people the Father loves. Full experiential knowledge of the Father depends upon learning to be comfortably at ease in the Father. Lynn is shaking her head. You looked ahead. Okay. You remember in John 14, Jesus said, at a future time, you're going to know, and it's coincident with the Spirit coming. Spirit hadn't been given yet, but He will be given. John, the John 7 passage, and then John 14, 17. He is with you. He will be in you. At some time yet future, the Spirit is going to have a peculiar and unique relationship to New Testament saints. It will be, will come to, well, we've learned, after the events of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, verse 4 and following. These all after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, his ascendance, to his uh, ascension to the Father, be seated at the right hand, and so on, till his enemies be made his footstool. The Holy Spirit 
took up a new relationship to the body of Christ and to each one individually, and one of those responsibilities was to teach. One of them was to teach. John 14, verse 20. When he, the Spirit of truth, has come. I'm supplying that, but it's strongly implicit there and explicit in in a neighboring text. You will know, he says to the disciples, that I am in the Father. Jesus indicating himself, I am in the Father. And you're in me, and I'm in you. Well, that needs to be unpacked. I'm not in anybody right now, I hope. I mean, Jonah was in the whale. My food is going to be in me after I eat it this afternoon. I'm not an internal, I'm not an internal parasite in the second person of deity. So what on earth is this relationship idea that he hammers three times? Three relationships. So-and-so and so-and-so, so-and-so and so-and-so, and this and that. Um, we think we have a pretty good idea. Scripture is pretty definitive on the I and you and ye and me, Christ speaking to the disciples. Pretty clear. Christ and the disciples' regeneration, the life of God disposed so that it is in them so that they can partake of godliness. That's regeneration. A quality of the life of God born in you. And the birth metaphor applies here. Then, you... In Christ. Did they somehow get inside him? Troy? Well, not that you know of. And by the way, you're right. Um, so what's that up? What's up with that? And what's up with <laughs> what's up with the Son in the Father? What, what, what would that mean? Somehow the Son is in the Father. They're co-equal members of deity. I was looking at some research today and one of the hermeneutics sites, uh, by the way, the son is not co-equal with the father. He's less than the father. Wow. Blip that out, you know. Warn people, don't go to that site. The spirit's not co-equal with the father. So said this research site. Be real careful. Deity doesn't depend on anything else. The Son is deity, and you can prove it from Scripture, so is the Spirit. So what does it mean that the Son is in the Father? He said so in John 14, verse 20. We'll look at that notion. Full experiential knowledge of the Father depends on, I'm going to correct what I said earlier, kind of teasing you. Point number three, full experiential knowledge of the Father depends on learning to be comfortably at ease in the Son. So, somehow, my access to the Father is going to be moderated, regulated, to some degree, by my access to the Son. Oh, yeah. To a large degree. <clears throat> then down to verse, down to sub point four, if I've got one down here. Let's see. What of commandments? What about commands and commandments? We live by grace, not under law. But what's up with the commandments? Whose commandments in 1 John 3 
The new commandment. Do you all know where that is? John 13. Do we all know where that is? 34, 35, thereabouts? And we would tell you quickly, love one another, as I have loved you, right? But here you've got plural. And you've got in several verses, you've got it more than once, you've got reference to a command, and then you've got reference to commandments. And by the way, who are the, to whom are the pronouns referring? There's some interpretive latitude here, and I'm going to be real, real cautious. But I'm going to give you some ideas that I think will help, I think should help you. What about commands? Because at some point, there's going to be a contingency Whatsoever we ask, John 3, uh, 1 John 3.22, we receive of him because we keep his commandments. Plural. And then in verse 23, and this is his commandment, singular, that we should believe on the name of, the, of the, his son, Jesus Christ. It's got to be speaking a commandment of the Father. When did he make that? And in some places, you're going to have the notion of believing into him with an ice preposition. We're not going to explore that today, but I would ask you, where is the Father commanded that you believe the Son? Anybody think? You don't have to answer all at once. Where is the Father commanded that we believe the Son? And this is his commandment singular, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. Wait a minute, I thought that commandment was the son's commandment. Now you're saying you want me to contemplate that it might be the father's commandment. What's up with that? That's confusing. Well, we'll see if we can help you. And then we're going to wrap this up with the abiding issue. Abiding in maybe the Son and the Father. Abiding in the truth concerning the doctrine of the Christ. Do you have an idea? Share it with us if you do. What the, the Christ is? Not yet. Or do you? Okay, well, it's sure a title. Right, but uh, <coughs> Okay. What is the Christ? What is the doctrine of the Christ? Because Second John chapter 1, verse 6, and this is love that we walk after his, and the walk there is peripatel. Oh, that's the normal intercourse of daily Christian living by grace. That we walked after his commandments, plural, this is the commandment singular, that as ye have heard from the beginning, ye should walk in it. What's that about? For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. This is the deceiver, a quality of Antichrist. Look to yourselves, verse 8, that we lose not those things which we have wrought. I'm going to tell you what I think is probably involved in that, but that we receive a full reward. Verse 9, whosoever transgresseth and abideth is, does not remain comfortably at ease in the doctrine of the Christ. Hath not God. 
hath not the God, here hath not the Father. He that abideth in the doctrine of the Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. So wait a minute. Boy, if I'm on my way to developing full experiential knowledge of the Father, I want to know what this doctrine of the Christ is. Because I want to be sure I'm properly disposed to that. I want to understand what's in view, and I want to be doing the things that Scripture makes this contingent on. If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, the doctrine of the Christ, receive him not into your house, into your church, neither bid him Godspeed. Don't invite these professing Christians into your pulpit. We think this probably was a reference to the local congregation. I do. Don't invite him to... Well, he sounds, he sounds pretty solid. Uh, I know he went to school, and I know some people that know him. I know some people that really hold him in high esteem. He seems mixed up on this doctrine of the Christ... And to be frank, it doesn't have a clue. Preacher, may I graciously suggest to you, as a colleague and as someone that's learning to be your good friend, and that takes, I mean, that's something that doesn't happen overnight, but it's happening fairly quick here. Vanessa's looking. I wonder where he's going with that. Um, um, if, you ha- if you're not a friend of this guy, you're missing something. We're becoming pretty good friends. Um, but, I mean, don't, don't invite a guy into the... And I'm not afraid you would that doesn't understand the doctrine of the Christ. Right? And then we'll wrap up. <clears throat> okay, let's open with a quick word of prayer. Father God, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for these people whose faithful attendance encourages not only each other but me. Help me this morning to be able to get out of the way so that the things that need to be said are properly communicated and with clarity. Please yourself with what we do here today. Amen. All right. Very quickly by review. And try to remember that our point here originally is how to be at ease in perilous times. The perilous in in 2 Timothy 3 Perilous times, we looked at Matthew 8. Perilous times, fierce times. The guys, the, the, the maniacs in the, of the Gadarenes were described as perilous. Fierce. People were afraid of them. Perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves. It's used only once here, probably doesn't need embellishment. Covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers. Disobedient to parents, we talked about a bunch of this last week, and these are words that with Strong's numbers, you can research yourselves. Unthankful, that's a powerful indictment. That's a stinging indictment to be called unthankful. That is a fundamental responsibility of the creature to the God who made him. To be thankful, just be thankful. Unholy, without natural affections, truce breakers, false accusers, Incontinent. Those of you who work in the healthcare industry, it doesn't mean what you think it might mean. Incontinent here means uh, without self-control, intemperate. Fierce, again, another word for fierce. Animated, violent probably attaches to this. Despisers of those that are good. Interesting word, you should study it. Doesn't even have kindred affection for the good things of God. Traitors, betrayers, heady, 
rash or reckless, high-minded, that's actually, should probably be translated heady, lofty, uh, esoteric, um, the, the word here is from where, the, the word from which we get our word typhoon. It's like you're in a fog. You're, you're like, uh, you know, in the clouds. You can't see reality. Lovers of pleasure, hedonism, more than lovers of God, and this is the philos love for God. This is not agathos love for God. They don't even have a mild kindred affection for God. This describes what we ought to expect. It's, it's coming. Having a form, and that's the word morphosis. And by the way, the morpho verb morphosis, we're going to look at it, just make mention very quickly, pass over a compound of it. It's the word that's used in compound for transfigured. Christ was transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration. You have the account of it three times in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, Peter uses a form of that verb in, with emphasis. Um, Paul uses it in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. And Paul uses it again in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Transfigured. You mean there's a transfiguration that's not, doesn't contemplate Christ? The morpho term, family of words, has to do with this. Not so much outward shape, although it's not completely divorced from that, but more so the idea of what, the, what is the essential that upon which the outward form is pivots, so to speak. You have another word, schema. It's often translated uh, fashion. John says the form and fashion of the world system are passing away. Not only the essential, but the outward shape. This word, morpho here, having a form, 2 Timothy 3, 5, a form of godliness that looks like New Testament godliness, but denying for themselves. It's a middle voice verb repudiating it. Fundamental to this notion of denying is repudiate. Repudiating it. Denying the power thereof. From such turn away, Paul says. For of this sort of they which, and I call them creeps, which creep into houses and lead captive silly women. Be careful. Don't, don't start hating now. I think there probably were some silly men involved in this, and I suggested that. But there's a reason that Paul says this. Maybe their husbands were not teaching them at home, and they deserved to be taught at home. They deserved to be taught by husbands who were stepping up to be head of the household and take responsibility for your household. Teach your wives. Teach them at home. Anyway, creep into houses, lead captive silly women laden with sins, laden away, led away with diverse, it says diverse, but it's really diverse, lust, strong desires, ever learning, Ever learning, Montano, learning like a disciple, and never able to come to full experiential knowledge of a quality of truth. Now, you've got the translated in First Tim- 2 Timothy 3, 7. Did someone just move that clock up? Someone just moved it up 10 minutes? <laughs> but there is no definite article in front of truth. But it's a quality of truth. Verse 8. The, the reference to Jannies and Jambres, I gave you a note there. You can look at that. Um, he uses them to illustrate this kind of error. 
then he says that, but thou hast fully known, verse 10, thou hast fully known, wow, do I want to chase this? It, the, the fully known here is not a form of gnosis, it's a different word which, which emphasizes the notion of someone following as a devotee. Um, you've fully known my doctrine, you've, you've, you've minded, you've paid attention to my doctrine, my manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, and agapao love, and patience. So those are all part of the ninefold fruit of the Spirit. Look at both words for patience there, the long-suffering which is the slow burn, slow fusedness, and then patience, which is really endurance. You've known this. You've seen my example, Paul says. You've known my persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch and Iconium, at Lystra, and so on. You can look at this. You can follow this in the book of Acts. Through all of it I endured, but out of them all the Lord rescued me. And that's properly translated the way I've given it to you in the notes. Rescue. Rescued for himself, by the way. It's a middle voice verb. Yea, and all that will live godly in Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, shall suffer persecution. Okay, that's the backdrop. Perilous times are coming. Be prepared. Paul gives some personal illustration. How far away do you think that is, saints? How far away? Next election cycle, what? Two years? Um, next year? Next month? What if we're not able to have the conference? What if, ooh. What if within a week we get hauled out by jackbooted thugs and you know, forced to take a shot that we don't think we want. How far away is this? Perilous times. That, by, by, by comparison, is minor. That's a Sunday school picnic. And I don't know if we should use that that way, Sunday school picnic. I, I enjoy Sunday school picnics. <clears throat> the remedy is to be at ease in him. As these, as these times approach. And by the way, I said last week, Paul warns, Peter warns, Jude says, oh, they're here. If you do not expect to encounter some persecution greater than you've had so far, you are not reading Scripture. And by the way, you've been encouraged numerous times today to read Scripture. <laughs> I'm going I'm to stick my neck out and say this. If you are not exposed to Scripture, do not expect to be Spirit-filled. If you are not exposed to Scripture, do not try to convince me that you know what it means to be comfortably at ease in the doctrines concerning the Christ. And if you are not exposed to Scripture on a regular basis, do not expect to convince anyone around you, particularly your wives or spouses, that the doctrines concerning the Christ are comfortably at ease in you. And Don has done some word work recently, and I, I'm going to borrow some of it. I think that at least to, to an extent, I may differ with you in some points, I think this comfortably at ease, I think there's a time when the emphasis of this meno verb is the thing that is to abide is wanted or welcome. Do you welcome, and we asked this question at the end of the message two weeks ago, do you want, do you welcome the doctrines concerning the Christ? Do you even know what they are? Do we have any notion what they are? I think I'm going to skip over Colossians chapter 1. I went there because there's a prayer here that's sublime. Um, the notes are going to help you. He calls Epaphras in Colossians 1.7 a fellow servant. 
Um, I think he called him a fellow prisoner in Philemon 123, or maybe he calls Philemon, you know, he calls Epaphras a fellow prisoner. And this is a soon compound. This is intimately together. This is a guy that really has got pulling in the same yoke. I said that to you on the phone the other day, didn't I? Let's pull in the same yoke. Look out. <laughs> Don't try to dance with someone who doesn't know how to dance. They'll ruin your Sunday shoes. Don't try to pull in the same yoke with somebody that doesn't have the same stride or same pace, doesn't have the same goal, isn't looking for the same corn cob out. You know, you remember the corn cob out in front of the mule to get the mule to pull the plow. Try pulling in the same yoke with somebody that doesn't want to go, that wants to go left when you want to go right. The fellow servant is all about pulling in the same yoke, getting it done. Um, Colossians 1, 9 through 10, and I think you really have to take that prayer down through verse 14. <clears throat> you have several references to prayer there, different kinds of prayer, and we, we talked about this a little bit last week. All right, at the end of that, I'm going to skip over this. Go down to Colossians 1.14. You've got some terms. Full experiential knowledge of God. Paul desires that the Colossian Christians will gain full experiential knowledge of God. This involves process, so it does involve growth, right? Full experiential knowledge of God. We suggested to you John chapter... Wow. How can I tie this together? John chapter 17, verse 3. And this, and I've taken some liberty with the word order here, which is permissible based on the language, based on the rules of Greek grammar. I'm going to interpret John 17, 3 this way. I'm going to translate it this way. By the way, if you don't can't find that quickly, I'll read it for you. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy son, that thy son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give life eternal. So apparently it is within the purview of the son in his role as Savior, to actually be the one to grant life eternal. Who is the one that does the saving? Well, technically it's the Spirit who does the regenerating. But the Son has a role to play in this. Thou hast given him power over all flesh that he should give life eternal to as many as thou, Father, hast given him. So we are gifts of the Father to the Son. Think about that. Does that ever get undone? No, not. Now verse 3. And this, I'm going to move the present tense verb here. And this life eternal is. It exists. So that they might know you experientially. You thought it was all about catastrophic end stage Insurance, fire insurance. Well, so did I, frankly, when I was first introduced to it. Don't have to go to hell. Life insurance. Life eternal. I get to go to heaven, be with God for eternity when it comes down to it. Until then, we're just doing what we're doing. You know. Would it change your, does it change your thinking to contemplate 
that the reason you were given life eternal, it, it does not dismiss the notion that this is catastrophic end game insurance. Oh yeah, everything that belongs to that notion. But you were granted life insurance. You were granted life eternal, so that you could come to experientially know God. Well, I thought. I mean. I can read about him in Scripture. I can. Well, I, I probably need to read more about him so I know him better. Um, I should start that this afternoon, probably. Oh, it's more than that. Jesus said during his earthly ministry, no man experientially knows God. No man. So prior to this particular dispensation of life eternal, experiential knowledge of God was not possible. That's not complicated. You may have a lot of questions about the implications. Well, oh my word, I have to change my thinking now. So basically what you're saying is Abe did not have experiential knowledge of God. Yeah, I guess that's what we're saying. He was justified, but he wasn't regenerated. He does not yet possess life eternal. That's a complicated notion. I mean, it may be provocative. God's doing something different. Thank you, Don, for the Sunday school class this morning and making, drawing our attention to simple distinctions. You're not under law. You don't have to gouge your eye out with a butcher knife for seeing things you shouldn't see. You're under grace, and that doesn't mean you can live as you please. The notion to abide, to remain comfortably at ease, is communicated with imperative. By the way, let's stop saying... My colleagues here are going to support me in this, I'm very sure. Can we just dismiss the simple throwaway notion that that an imperative is is a command? You get your, 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 your first year students, oh yeah, ooh, ooh, imperative, come in. Um, your second year students will say, well, your Greek professors will say, uh, can we talk? <clears throat> this much is true of an imperative, and I'm not going to pretend to teach you New Testament Greek in one sweep here, but the imperative universally represents the bringing to bear of the will of one upon the will of another. Does that mean twist your arm up behind your neck? Maybe in some cases by context. In other cases, no. It may involve someone saying to you, you know, I, I, would, I would really, I'd appreciate it if, you know what I've been thinking? What if, what if um, we moved that over there? And then we took that and moved it over here. And we took this and put it out on the street corner. Free stuff. And someone came by and picked it up. Or the trash. You know what? Let's do that. Let's do that. And You know what? If I had known you want... You, yeah, that makes sense. Let's, let me get right on that. Imperative. Could be expressed with an imperative. 
Sometimes parents will use imperatives persuasively and they don't have to threaten to ground you or take your keys or whatever. You know, make you break up with your girlfriend or your boyfriend, as the case may be. But, abide. This is for your own good. I'm telling you this for your own good. Seriously. Abide. Learn what it means to be comfortably at ease and then do it. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, verse 3, and this is life eternal, that, and this life eternal is so that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. You were saved as a New Testament grace believer so that you could come to experientially know God. Paul prays for the Colossian Christians, who, by the way, were regenerated, otherwise they wouldn't have been Colossian Christians. There wouldn't have been New Testament believers in Colossae. But they would come to know God, the Father, experientially. All right. Let me see if I can pick this up a little bit. <clears throat> Full experiential knowledge of God. I've given you at least two terms there. Do I have abide there? I may, I may not, because I may have added that after Joyce printed this. <laughs> Joyce, I added a bunch of notes after you printed this. I'm really sorry. But I will... <laughs> I will. I'm going to try to get this up on the internet. Full experiential knowledge of God, epigenosis. And I've given you some references there where you can learn some things about full experiential knowledge of God. They're all New Testament references. Um, I've, given you, I've given you some references to support both the noun use and the verb use. The first one there is a noun, the second is a verb. I think I got that in. Then abide. And here's what I'm going to say about abide. I, I looked again at an English dictionary of etymology. Etymology has to do with word usage as it develops or enlarges in common parlance, in use. Okay, A, a uh, definition enlarges in use. Patiently endure, sustain, stay firm under. Also, to tolerate, to bear, to put up with. Now, I've been doing this for some, I've been intrigued with this for a long time because the notion of be at ease, I kind of, that kind of, I had a hard time just saying, okay, yeah. Um, what I have found in more recent years is there is a solid basis for a use of this term in English, which means to accept, to reasonably accept to grow comfortable with, in some cases, it's accompanied with a negative. I can't put up with that. I can't abide it. I can't tolerate it. I can't patiently endure it. But in other cases, where it's not used with a negative, I can, I, I'm, I can become comfortable with this. I believe John's use of the term in John 15, the meno verb, signals a technical use of this term. When did John write the Gospel of John? Late. I've called John the Dean of New Testament theologians, or the Dean of the, of, of, of the Apostles. Okay? He wrote the, the Johannine Epistles late. This word, I believe, is John's term 
for learning to comfortably, what, what is the Petrine reference for? Righteousness will settle down and be at home as if it sat back and took its shoes off. The journey's over, we're done. I'm at home. It's a, it's a, a word that Peter uses a word that is a compound of the word for house. I'm at home. In a sense, I believe this approaches that. Can you be comfortable, can you learn to be comfortable with this body of doctrine that concerns the Christ? The Christ. Okay, point three. Full experience and knowledge of the Father depends upon learning to be comfortably at ease in the Son. Why do I say that? I don't find any mechanism anywhere. where we are to contemplate our relationship to the Father without relationship to the Son. Apart from any way around it, without our relationship to the Son. I infer that you, your full experiential knowledge of the Father and learning to be at ease in the Father because you will be confronted with texts in 1 John which tell you clearly that it is the desire of the Godhead that you abide in the Father. Why did Christ in the upper room say, in that day you will know that I am in the Father? All right, let me I get accused of never speaking expositorily. Go to first John two twenty four We've got this notion of of being at ease. We pick it up in John fifteen. We've got a a concept of learning to be a uh, uh, gaining experiential knowledge of the Father, this is all going to marshal to our benefit so that we will have a remedy as we face perilous times. And by the way, this is not new. Okay, First John 2.24. Now let's go down. I, I don't know how much of this I'm going to be able to get through, but let's begin. First John 2.24. Let that therefore abide. In you, remain comfortably at ease in you, which you have heard from the beginning. From the beginning. Um, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, the Son was facing the Father. What beginning? What beginning is John referencing here? If that which you have heard from the beginning shall abide, shall remain in you, ye also shall abide, remain in the Son, and in the Father. And this is the promise. Remember, promise is related to hope. Hope is uh, predicated upon promise that he hath promised us even life eternal. These things have I written unto you concerning them that seduce you. But the anointing, and by the way, I don't know how many notes I gave you, how, what I added to this, but the anointing is the gifted 
ability that you have to be taught by God the Spirit. To be taught the truth of Scripture by God the Spirit. You have a mention of it here. You have a mention of it in 1 John 2.20. I think you have two mentions of it here. It's mentioned three times. And when you study it, it is very clearly a gifted ability by God the Spirit. To be taught by God the Spirit. Which ye have received, the, the, the anointing, which ye have received of him, of who? Who gave you the Spirit, by the way? The Son, the Father? Well, you're going to notice here, we can't spend more time on it, you're going to notice that the Son petitioned the Father as an equal to send the Spirit. Really, both of them are involved in sending the Spirit, but it's the Father. Basically, the Son with the Father, but the Father sent the Spirit. You need not that any man teach you relevant things, but as the same anointing teacheth of all things. And by the way, it doesn't teach you how to repair your car. It teaches you the, re the relevant things here. We're talking about didache. And we've got peri with the genitive here, generally concerning. I wish I had more time to go over that. As the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, you shall abide. Be comfortably at ease. Remain comfortably at ease in Him. Wow. I'm, I'm hearing this more than... I'm getting uncomfortable hearing this so many times. This abide, abide, abide. Comfortably at ease. I'm not sure I'm comfortable because I'm not even sure exactly what this is. Let's go on. Verse John 2.28 And now little children, abide in Him, that, there it is again, that when He shall appear, we may have confidence. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. When He shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Oh boy, I'm dreading the Bema because I know there's some things that I'm not sure anybody else knows about and I, oh man, everybody's going to find out and I'm going to be so embarrassed and I, I wish I could put the Bema off and frankly, I'm not doing so well with consistency in my own personal life. I wonder, wow, what will I be doing when the when the rapture occurs, I hope I don't get caught red-handed. You said heresy last week, so I can say heresy this week. It is heresy to teach fear of the Bema. It is not intended to produce fear. Fear has torment, so says the scripture, 1 John 4. And quite frankly, I think there's a verse in here that might speak to that very issue. This is not the Bema. This is his appearing. This is his sudden appearing, which you are told in Titus chapter 2, to welcome expectantly. And of the 14 places where that verb occurs, of the 14 places, eight of them contemplate the appearing of God on time as promised. I don't know if I gave that to you in your notes, but And now, little children, abide in him that when he shall appear, you may have confidence. That's the boldness that's spoken of in Hebrews chapter 4, round about verse 15. And not be ashamed before him at his coming. Coming there is parousia. It's the glorious appearing. If you know that he is 
that he is righteous, you know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. Behold what manner of love, this is 1 John 3, 1, and I just seamlessly connected the context. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the born ones, it's regeneration in view, the born ones of God. Therefore the world knoweth, experientially knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Here you have a statement that the world did not know God, did not experientially know God. You were saved so that you could know God, not only so that you could develop experiential knowledge of the persons of deity, but so that you could learn to be comfortable in that intimacy. By the way, perilous times are coming. You better gird up your loins. I got a remedy for perilous times if you're willing to listen. It depends on you being rightly related to God and understanding what all is in view in that. The world knoweth us not because it knew him not. Beloved, <laughs> I, can't, I can't digress. Now are we the born ones of God and it does not yet appear. And by the way, appear there is fane rao. It's not yet manifested what we shall be, but we know that when he shall be manifested, same word, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that had this hope, what hope? The hope of being like him when he appears, when he's manifested. And by the way, that's detailed in Titus chapter 2. So don't be afraid of it. Everyone that hath this hope in him, purifies himself even as he is pure. Now, this is a little dicey. I think there's a little interpretive latitude here. You have two words for purify. They're not the same, but they're related. Purifieth himself even as he is pure. Is the he referring to Christ or is it referring to something about the one who's purifying himself? I'm going to suggest that a possible interpretation could be here. If you are expecting to welcome the sudden appearing of Christ, you will be purifying yourself in process, present active indicative, even as you are pure in your position. You will keep short accounts of sin. And by the way, the most explicit formula for taking care of known sin, acts of sin that you find in Scripture, is right in this epistle. And you have people teaching today heretically that Christians don't sin. They make mistakes. They don't need to confess because Jesus took care of everything at the cross. Don't you know He did? But there is a family issue that you need to carefully manage. It doesn't make sense to say the Christian. What is the result that they live like the Dickens? And there's a warning in 1 John about it. And I think this compounds it here. If you understand your relationship to the Godhead, if you understand what was done for you, the pile of resources that was compounded to help you live the Christian life by more than white-knuckled piety. What is white-knuckled piety? White-knuckled piety is just do it. 
Just try harder. Paul says when you try harder, you lose every time. Romans chapter 7. There's a lot of testosterone in the room. And ladies, I think you can understand what I'm saying. When you just try harder, you just got to work at it. The flesh wins every time. When you try to defeat the flesh by the power of the flesh, plus you get bloody palms, white knuckles, right? Just keep your fingernails clipped. If you have the hope that comes from the exaltation, not exaltation, exaltation, exulting, thrilling at the notion that in the next moment, at any, what's your email? Perhaps today, maybe maybe the next moment, Dr. Shaper's MRD Hans inscription on his uh, headstone. Perhaps today. If that is your hope, you are expecting to welcome him, you will be keeping short accounts of sin, of known sin. Got to move. Wow. First John 3, 4. Anybody, listen to me. Anyone, look at John, look at First John 3, 4. I'm going to translate it this way, and I'll help you with it after class. I made this, this change before Joyce printed the notes. Anyone, comma, the one committing, it's a, it is a participle, it's a present participle, the sin, articular, comma, is also committing, present active indicative, the lawlessness. For the sin, articular, is the lawlessness. Nowhere in this verse is there any basis for saying that sin is a violation of the Mosaic Law. Disabuse yourself of that painfully, woefully mistaken notion. Sin is lawlessness. Here's what sin does. (laughs) No governing sin. Answerable to nobody. No governing standard. That's lawlessness. No standard. And unrighteousness has the quality of sin. Sin has a quality of unrighteousness. Unrighteousness has a quality of sin. But you have enough scripture in the New Testament to be very specific with acts of sin and how you manage them and what you do about them. Got to move. Okay. I want to get down to 321. 313, marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. And Don talked about hate today. There are two words for hate. One is virulent hate. The other one is non-virulent hate. Listen. Uh, this is maybe not a good visual, but you talk to somebody that's been jilted in a romantic relationship, you know what's the most painful thing? Not to get all kinds of invectives from the person I broke up with, but just, they don't even know I exist. They don't even know I'm alive. Dismissive. That is what I think underlies this notion of hating your brother, miseo, non-virulent. It's... It's uh, not dismissive. What is it? Um, I don't even. I don't even. I said last week or two weeks ago. It takes. It takes energy to hate somebody. 
I don't. I'm not even going to. I'm not even going to muster the energy to to target you with virulent hatred. I don't even know you. I'm going to ignore you. That's the hate that I think underlies this maseo word in this portion of First John three. Um, wow. Hereby. Verse 16, experientially know we love God because he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our life for the brethren. That's a tithemi verb. That's to place. That doesn't mean to sacrificially uh, to be necessarily to be a sacrifice. It could in some cases, but that's the word to place. And Don illustrated today how that doesn't necessarily mean laying it down. It means to put it out there to offer it. Whoso hath this world's goods and seeth his brother have need, Don dealt with that very well. What about the commandments? Look at 18. My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. The word assure there is the pytho verb. And I believe, and I'm going to say this for Don and Kevin and and, uh, Scott and maybe Courtney if he hears it. I think this involves an emotional appeal. It's a fascinating word. I haven't finished my study on it yet. But there is room for our, our emotions to be properly marshaled. The pastor used the phrase, um, what, did you, what did you say last week about the managing the soul about, it was your parapoyeo reference. I can't remember. But we, we are to, we have a, You have the ability to carefully manage the part of your humanity that is targeted by the flesh. Say say again? Possess. Possess, yeah. It's a unique possession. Okay. I think that's part of what's in view here. Shall assure, shall persuade our hearts before him. For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. Wow. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, that's a third class condition. If it does, it might, it might not. But if it does, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. Verse 21, if our heart condemn us not, we have confidence, boldness, Hebrews 4.16, towards God, towards the Father. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him, verse 22, because we keep his commandments. Whose commandments? The Father's commandments. When did the Father give us commandments? Anyone? Listen. And after six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John, all of them wrote, right? His brother, and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart, and was transfigured, metamorpho. And in all three cases in the Gospels, same word, Same case, same tense, exactly the same form. They're saying the same thing. He was transfigured before them. Okay, we're going to move on. This is Matthew chapter 17, and I've given you the reference, but I want to move down to, you've got it in Mark 9, 28. It's virtually a parallel account. You've got it in Luke 9, 28 through 36. Metamorpho. And it's an aorist Indicative. Those are the only places it occurs. 
except for Romans 12.2, which reads this way. Remember what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration? Jesus was transfigured. What happened to you, Romans 12? Let me get this here. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye... What if I said transfigured? What if I said be changed from the inside so that what you are on the outside is reflected by what you are on the inside? The outside has to change if the inside, what's essential, changes, right? Now, there are a ton of textual variants that accompany Romans 12 too. But look at another place it's used. This is the only other place this word, which is translated transfigured in these texts in the Gospels, talking about the transfiguration of Christ, it occurs in 2 Corinthians 3.18, and this is how that reads. But we all with open face beholding as a glass, the, as in a glass, the glory of the Lord are changed. Transfigured. Oh my word. You know what Peter said? When he saw what he saw in the Mount of Transfiguration. Hey, 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 Lord, 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 Lord. Listen, listen. Let's uh, quick gather some, let's build a monument. Lord said to him, don't tell a soul what you've seen here today. You know where the monument is? You know what the memorial is? It's you. It's you. And it's you. And it's you. Second Corinthians chapter 3 is a central New Testament text on the new covenant for the church. And it is a doctrine that belongs to the Christ. Troy. And this is the basis for you living, it is part of the basis for you living the Christian life. The memorial that Peter wants, Peter? Here's what Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables. The followed there is a, is a Related word to the word where Paul says, you have followed my doctrine. This is an intense word, an intensified word. He says, we have not cunningly followed cunningly devised fables. That's myths. When we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for he received from God the Father honor and glory when he came such a when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is he doesn't have enough superlatives here. Well he does because God the Spirit's order in the writing of this, but this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. You know what Peter left out? You know what the Father said? Hear ye him. 
Listen and do what the Son says. And if you are careful with your New Testament, you will see that the Son said nothing that the Father did not give to Him. Commandments of the Son came from the Father. The Son is in the Father. That is part and parcel of the doctrine of the Christ. You need to be comfortably at ease in that body of truth, and it needs to be comfortably at ease in you. And if it is not, do not expect to resist perilous times and don't expect to get along with him and don't expect to get along with her. And any of the rest of you and me, including myself, if the doctrine concerning the Christ is not comfortably at ease in you, what is the Christ? Turn to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. We'll do this very quickly. I meant to do this earlier. And I'm pointing to Troy because Troy and I talked about this. By the way, while you're turning there, are you... Being picky unish about what the commandments are. I believe the Father's commandments and the Son's commandments both come from the Father. And I've given you notes to prove that. Nothing the Son said. I don't speak my own things. I speak only, John chapter 8, I speak only the things that He gives to me. This is the role of the Son in salvation. He voluntarily subordinated Himself for a time for a specific purpose. And part of it was to what? To exegete the Father. To show the Father. No man seen any, no man at any time has seen God, but you've seen the Son. And you've got witness of the records of the one who did and who were mightily impressed. The Father said, This is my beloved Son. That whole idea of sonship, as you have it in the New Testament, it is foreign to his messianic ministry, it belongs to the Christ. It is New Testament truth. And we will preach that here until we die or someone silences us. Well, I... Am I safe in saying that? You can read through the rest of this. I... I I want, to get to, I want to get to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, if you have, parenthetically, if you have heard of the dispensation of the grace from God, which is given me to you, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in a few words, whereby when ye read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of, Troy, the Christ. Now, it's either the Messiah or it's something else. It is definitely the anointed. The doctrine of the Christ introduced here. Explicitly. Um, First Corinthians 12, verses 12 and 13. We're going to end up in Acts chapter 2, verses 23 through 36. But 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 through 13. For as the body is one and hath many members. Listen, listen, Troy, follow me. For as the body is one, you, you need at some point to ask, what is the body in view? You have a good notion what it is, but visualize the body. For as the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of that one body being many are one, so also is Israel's Messiah. I doubt it. Not according to Scripture. But so also is the 
Christ articulates. Talking about the same thing. What is it? For by one Spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. That's verse 13. <clears throat> now I want you to go over to Acts verse 2, or chapter 2, verses 26 through 30, 23 through 36. And I actually... Does anybody remember me speaking on this before? I spoke at a Bible, at a Bible conference once when you were all kids. Um, Peter is mightily moved of God. He references, people are speaking in tongues. You have men, devout Jews from 13 different regions. They all know the Old Testament. Presumably they know why they're there in Jerusalem. Um, he starts talking to them. Twice with the use of heteros, others of a different kind. You have a hint that not everybody listening to him belongs to the same category of people. And we won't get into all of that. But he begins to talk to them about, G about the Jews. Messiah. He references a prophecy in Joel. And then he says, this is that. This is that. And it's a neuter. I don't know if I should say this. I'm not going to say it. I got rebuked one time on Facebook for <laughs> challenging a professor at Dallas on this point. He said, I've been teaching Greek for all my life, and I never... And I said, well, I apologize for ruffling your feathers. That's basically the way it went, only with a lot more comedy. Acts chapter 2. Joel's prophecy was not fulfilled on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. Something else that Peter says this is that was fulfilled. The advent of the Spirit. Joel's prophecy involved a spectacular and miraculous advent of the Spirit at a time yet future. Peter identifies the advent of the Spirit, witnessed the events in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, the speaking in tongues in the upper room and so on. They're all in one accord. Um, and Peter says this is that. This is the advent of the Spirit. Same thing Joel was talking about. Not the prophecy, but the advent of the Spirit. Same type of thing. Okay. Verse 22. Ye men of Israel. Peter is talking to Israelites who will be transitioned saints who, who are saints. They're just. They're called just in verse 5 of chapter 2. They're justified men, but they need to be transitionalized into this new dispensation. Ye men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, the man, we, we know Jesus, yeah, Jesus of Nazareth, the man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, those all have technical meanings in the New Testament, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Him being delivered, now the, the construction here gives us warrant to say, him having been delivered and relates it to time. This is something that is present in time. He has been delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge. Granville Sharp construction there. Ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Now I'm going to stop in a moment. or I'm going to stop here and say, when you look down here, you, you, it's very clear they understood what he was saying because on this point right here, they say, oh, oh what? do we do? Man and brethren, what do we do? We missed our Messiah. They understood exactly what he was saying. And he lays it to their charge. You have crucified and slain. Verse 24. Whom God, this Jesus, whom God hath raised up, having loosed from the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. For David speaketh concerning him. I foresaw the Lord always before my face. 
For he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice and my tongue was glad. Moreover also my flesh shall rest in hope. (coughs) Because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. Neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Now he makes the point. It can't be David that's being spoken of here. Because David is still in the grave. Let's get down to verse 33. Verse 32. This Jesus hath God raised up whereof we are all witnesses. Verse 33. Therefore, based on the case we've just made, being him at present time, being by the right hand of God exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Spirit, Uh, the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has shed forth forth this which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended, but the Lord. I'm trying to... It is the Lord to whom God said, Sit thou on my right hand. Verse 35. Until I make thy, thy foes thy footstool. That comes from Psalm 2. Verse 36. Therefore... Let all the house of Israel know, assuredly, that God hath made that same Jesus, Jesus who? Jesus of Nazareth, whom you have crucified, both Lord and Messiah. No. No. If you pay attention to Scripture, there is nothing new about the anointed of God being associated with Israel's Messiah. Go back and research Mashiach. Look at the use of Christos in the New Testament. Something changes at this point with the term the anointed expressed in Greek, Christos. Pivotal on this text right here. Peter identifies a new concept, which will also bear the name the Christ. And I couldn't marshal them for you today, but there are no less than 15 references where it's very clear from the context that it is not Israel's Messiah in view. As a matter of fact, I'm going to tell you that from this point on, overwhelmingly, when you see the word, unless it's clear by context that it is the second person, it is this new thing that is also called the Christ. What is the Christ according to Ephesians chapter 3. It's a brand new created entity. Go to Hebrew or Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Ephesians 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. The term created there is a term for create out of nothing. Look at verse 15. Verse 15, Ephesians 2. I'm taking more time than I meant to. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to create in himself of two one new man, so making peace. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. The newly created thing is the Christ. It is a realm, you've heard this before, 
of intimate relationship into which every New Testament saint has been immersed by spirit baptism, that is the place God gets his business done with you. That is the place of blessing. That is the place he works. That is what you need to learn to be. We need to, I said this, it's you. We need to learn to be comfortably at ease with the process. And the doctrine concerning the Christ includes this host of New Testament doctrine. The Christ. I have to stop. <clears throat> and so we, we're at the place we were two weeks ago. Where I hurriedly, I hurriedly went through some of this. Are you comfortable? Are you comfortably at ease having been transfigured from the inside out? Are you comfortably at ease with the notion that God is doing something with you based on the relationships in John 14, 20? You're related to the Son, but you're also related to the Father. And remember, the commandments from the Son are commandments from the Father. Don't be picky, Eunice. This is my beloved Son. Hear ye him. Hear and do what he says. And for the rest of the, you know, Jesus is doing. I mean, Jesus is saying to his disciples and telling them, reminding them from time to time, this is not from me, this is from the Father. And by the time you get to 1 John 3 and 4, if you're in the Son, you're in the Father. And, and learning to be comfortably at ease in that relationship has got to be based on what Scripture tells you about the relationship. And if you want to be ready for what? There are things I could say and I probably shouldn't, but there are many, many, many things that would distract you. Don't, don't let that happen. Don't let that happen. Be comfortably at ease with what the Godhead is doing in and through you. And um, we'll probably revisit this. Um, it's too much to try to get done in one or two messages. And you've got to preach next week because they'll forget, you know. <clears throat> okay. We are, I'll, I'll dismiss in prayer and then we'll what? Saying, blessed be the tie? All right. Father God, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the impact that it is sure to have on our lives. Thank you for your all-sufficiency. Thank you for uh, getting your business done. Thank you for taking pleasure in what you've decided you're going to do. And might we be people who are available and ready and willing to be, to be used um, as you see fit. Help us now as we dismiss to our homes, uh, give us safety, and uh, be pleased with what we do and say for the rest of our time today. Amen.